thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Welcome to this uh, Bible study on the book of Genesis. We are now in chapter 29, and tonight I'm going to <clears throat> attempt something that I have so far successfully failed at on a regular basis, and that is try to do two chapters in one hour. Not very good at it, but uh, they're kind of connected, and so I thought, Let, we'll give it a shot and see how well we do. So please, if you have scripture with you, turn to chapter 29 in the book of Genesis, and let's start right there. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and lo, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place upon the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. Is it not time for the animals to be gathered together, water the sheep, and go pasture them? But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together, and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she kept them. Now when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the well's mouth, and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. When Laban heard the tidings of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful and lovely. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. 
But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her maid. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve, you with, did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to wife. Laban gave his maid Bil, uh, Bila to his daughter Rachel to be her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will, join, will be joined to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. So in this, um, this chapter is obviously a continuation of the previous one. In the previous chapter, if you remember, we've seen Jacob leaving and arriving at a place that was unnamed. And in that place he met the Lord in a vision, in a dream that he had, where he saw a ladder that touched earth and went all the way up to heaven. And up on, the, on top of the ladder was the Lord and angels coming, going up and coming down. And in the morning he realized how holy that place was, put a, put a rock and continued his journey. He is journeying alone and as a fugitive. He has nothing. So when he reaches this well, he is not aware that he actually reached his point of arrival. He doesn't know that yet. And he has this conversation with these shepherds. Now notice... There's sort of a, there's a little bit of irony in the conversation because he says, um, um, my brothers, where do you come from? Notice, uh, by the way, the use of the word my brothers. They are not his brothers. Right? They're not the children of his mother. He calls them my brothers. So when in the New Testament we hear of Jesus' brothers, we cannot immediately conclude that these are his blood brothers. Right? Scripture is filled with these situations where you will hear over and over again someone being called a brother when he's not a brother. In fact, in Hebrew, there is no word for cousin. You don't have a specific word for cousin. You only have a word for brother. So either you call them your kinsman or you call them your brother, and that's it. Likewise with sisters, same deal. And so he says, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. I mean, notice the brevity of the answer. No conversation here. Right? Not, and you, where do you come from? Right? We're from Haran. So he prods them again. Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. And that's it. You notice the irony in the tone? Just no... They're only giving him as much information as he's asking for while remaining polite, but nothing more. 
Nothing more. And then he says, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Now they notice Rachel is arriving. And they point that out to him, lest he actually knows the man. And he goes and complains to them about their attitude towards him. Right? Um, so, he's not well received when he gets there. He meets Rachel, and then he's going to meet Laban. And obviously, Laban has ulterior motives. Right? He receives him, but he doesn't necessarily receive him because he's very happy to see him. He has ulterior motives, as we're going to see through the text. So, the land of the east is obviously the land to the east of Canaan. That's a, a general designation, which means really the land of the, essentially the land of the Gentiles, east of Canaan. And uh, we, he, he looked and he saw a well in the field and three flocks of sheep lying beside it. Um, this business of well is so ingrained in Genesis, and we will see it also in the Gospel of John. The well is so important, this notion of the well, contrasted with the notion of living water. Right? Water that flows from a river. Right? Which is what Jesus tells the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. Because when he meets her the first time, he says, give me a drink. Give me water to drink. And she says, you, you we're strangers. We don't know each other. And you're asking me to give you water to drink? And he replies back, woman, if you knew who's asking you, you would ask him. Right? So he basically uses this as a bait to get her to kind of realize who she's talking to. And he says, and I will give you, what? Living water. Living water is an expression that indicates, what's living water? Have you ever seen dead water? Okay, so what's living versus dead? Exactly, those are images. Stagnant, still, versus running, flowing. Fresh, right? So he says, so what's better, water from a well or water that's coming straight out from the mountain? All right? So he says, he asks her for water, and then he says, if you knew who's talking to you, you'd ask him, and he would give you water that's much better than this. Right? So there's always this business of the well. Now, I haven't had a chance uh, this week. Um, I was fairly busy, so I didn't, I didn't go and check what the fathers have said about this text, but I, I would, I'd be... I would be willing to bet that the following must be something they have said. And if, if, it, if it isn't, um, I think it's still a worthwhile meditation. If you look at it from a spiritual point of view, you have three flocks, right? Three flocks is this image of the Trinity, the completion of God's work in the world. So essentially, this is the well that waters everyone, right? Everyone under the sign of the Trinity. But the well is closed. There's a stone on it. And what do they say? We have to wait for everybody to come together before we can open up the well. Meaning, we have to wait for the appointed hour for that well to be open. Now, Jacob sees Rachel, who is going to be what? What is Rachel to him? Exactly. When he sees her, he alone does an act of requiring superhuman strength. 
Because a stone on the well is not light. Stones are usually much heavier than they look. Right? In fact, wood is much heavier than it looks. But stones are very heavy. And you're not supposed to be one guy able to roll the stone off. Now, think about it. Why did they put a stone on top of the well? Why a stone, not a plank of wood? Well, obviously, there's reasons why they covered the, 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 the well to begin with, right? Let's talk about that. Why did they cover the well? People don't fall in. Animals may not fall in. Yes, may not be poison. Dirt, right? You want to keep it as clean as... Remember, this is not flowing water, right? So you have to care for it. But if today you had a well, as many people do, maybe not here in San Diego, right where we are, but there are people who have well. Would you cover it with a stone? I mean, unless you have a hydraulic, hydraulic pump next to it, would you cover it with a stone? Why would you cover it with a stone? What's the intent? Exactly. Yeah, you need multiple hands to be able to lift the stone, right? You don't want somebody that's showing up, right, from anywhere by himself, lifting up the stone and, and, and get, taking water, right? So, and yet, this is exactly what Jacob does. But when does he do it? When he sees Rachel. Now, what is that indicative of? Remember, why are we studying Genesis? Why are we studying the book of Genesis? Why are we spending so much time studying it? Because the book of Genesis is full of these portraits, of these icons, of these icons about Christ. These were icons. So this, this event that happened in history carried its own meaning. This is the literal meaning of it. But all of it also acts as a pointer as a symbol to a much deeper meaning, the one that will be fulfilled in Christ. So, this is why we say that the author of Scripture is the human being who actually sat down, wrote that text, or penned it, or, you know, probably listened to Moses retelling the, the story of Genesis and penned it down, and he used his capacity to the fullest. And yet, his pen was supernaturally guided by the true author, the ultimate author, the Holy Spirit, who had another tale to tell. And why was it done this way? It was done this way so that those who spent time meditating on Scripture, meditating on the book of Genesis, studying it, memorizing it, absorbing it, and being able to see their world in light of Scripture would recognize Christ. Would recognize Christ. The, the perfect example, the, the exhibit A of what I'm talking to you about, happened again in the book of the Gospel of St. John. In the Gospel of St. John, one of the apostles was, as St. John t tells us, was reading the scripture under the fig tree which was a Jewish tradition. The fig tree represented uh, Israel. Right? And so, right before Passover, before the, the Feast of Passover, which corresponds to Easter, if you were a pious Jew, you would study Scripture, you would read the Torah, under the fig tree. And you're meditating on the Torah. 
And that particular apostle is Nathaniel. Nathaniel is under the fig tree and he's reading scripture. And one of the apostles come running to him and says, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we have found the Messiah. He is Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel answers back and says, Can anything comes can anything good comes out of Nazareth? Which is very interesting if you read the Gospel of St. John, because right before that, the language is so mystical. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word came. I mean, it was so mystical. That's why the symbol of St. John is the eagle, right? He flies so high. And then suddenly he dips into this sort of uh, anecdotal conversation. Hey, Nathaniel, we found a Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? And then Jesus sees Nazareth, Nathaniel, and he says to him, Behold, a Jew in whom there is no guile. Which is very interesting, because who has guile? Jacob. Right Now, if you don't know Genesis, if you don't know this thing, guile will not even resonate. Right? But if you understand what he's saying, here is the Jew with whom, whom there is no guile. It's, it's almost like saying, here's a Jew in whom there is no Israel. What is, he, what is he saying? Here's a soul already prepared for the new covenant. I mean, there's a very deep statement that he's making here, but if you don't understand what's going on here, the connection is lost. And then Nathaniel looked at him and says, uh, how do you know me? And he says, um, before... Um, he basically tells him, before somebody talked to you, I saw you under the, the, the fig tree. It's a fairly innocuous answer. I saw you under the fig tree. I mean, the normal answer would have been, on Nathaniel's part, is, uh, were you hiding? Where were you? And what, did, what does Nathaniel say? My Lord and my God. How did we, how did we go from I saw you under the, the fig tree to my Lord and my God? There is a number of consideration that happens in the minds of Nathaniel that leads him to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to see in this man from Nazareth the Messiah. But unless he had a good understanding of Scripture, it would never have happened. There is obviously a relationship between Nazareth and Netzer, the root word for tree. Right? And... The, the tree, remember the tree of Jacob? Or the, the, even the, yeah, the tree of David. You do, the, you, some of you have this, uh, this tradition in Advent where you actually go through the, the tree, right? Uh, where you open up uh, these little boxes and there's different names or different things. Well, it comes back to the fact that also, as I said, Israel was compared to a tree, a fig tree. But it was chopped down to be rebuilt. And Netzer is this notion of the shoot that's coming out of a tree. The branch, if you will. The branch which became then associated with the Messiah through scripture. Because he would be the branch. The new branch that's coming from the stem of David. And so the Netzer and Nazareth have the same roots. And that's one connection he makes with multiple others. I don't have time to go through the whole chapter. But unless... My point to you is that unless he had this understanding of Scripture, he would not recognize Jesus. Now let's go back to here. What's going on? Who rolled a stone? Who rolled a big stone? When? Yeah. Right? 
It's very interesting that he rolled the stone, he comes out, and who is the first one to see him? Don't mumble, I can't hear. Mary Magdalene. And what does she want to do? She wants to embrace him. Now notice what Jacob does here after he rolls the stone, right? Jacob went out and rolled the stone for the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. For the meditative mind, who is of Jewish background, when you see these events unrolling before your eyes, you start to understand all of Scripture in the light of Jesus Christ. It is the life and the actions of Jesus Christ which are key to understanding the fullness of Scripture. It's when you know about the rolling of the stone and the meeting with St. Mary Magdalene and the way Jesus reacts to her when he says, Do not touch me, I have not yet gone to my father. And you compare that to what happened with Jacob who rolled the stone using supernatural force for Rachel and only for Rachel and he watered the flock. Now what does that mean? This is not running water. What do you have to do to water the flock? He had to pull the water out. He had to pull it out of the well and give it to her. Much like Jesus, through his resurrection, takes the still water of our well and feeds the church. Do you see that? That's why we study Scripture. So we understand how Jesus Christ acts in our lives today. These are portraits set before us to meditate on them. And the more you meditate on them in the light of the Gospels, in the light of the life of Jesus Christ, the more the Holy Spirit talks to your heart about your own life. Oftentimes, people focus right away on the moral reading, one of the three spiritual readings. Unfortunately, the moral reading, when separated from a literal meaning of Scripture and separated from the teachings of the church, will lead you astray. And that is why you have so many people out there reading Scripture, interpreting in such different, different and opposing ways. Different is okay, because our situations are different, but it's the opposition that creates perplexities, right? But when you interpret Scripture in the light of its literal meaning and in the light of the teachings of the church, you never go astray. And even when you read the Fathers, they will have different ways of looking at the same passage and they will have different interpretation, but they do not contradict. So, he says to her, he said to her, he tells her who he is, and he kisses her. Now, he kisses her because it's, it's essentially, this is not a um, romantic kiss. This is, a, this is simply family kiss. Now, those of you who are from the Middle East, you know what I'm talking about. You meet a relative, even if it's the third degree removed cousin of your great grand uncle, you're still going to kiss him, his family. Right? So, that's what we're talking about here. He, he is so happy that he has met finally someone from his own kin. Yet his action speaks louder than his words because he's basically doing it for his bride, really the love of his heart. Now, another point I want to attract your attention to, which is very, very um, worth meditating on. 
Um, this is something that, that St. Matthew picked up in his gospel. This notion of running. The immediacy of the action. So, Jacob seizes, he sees Rachel and immediately lifts this thing and right away pours the water for her. He tells her who he is and she immediately runs. She ran to tell her father. Her father runs to meet him. Everybody is running. If you recall, when Abraham sent his servant to find a wife for Isaac, Rebecca came out and immediately pulled water for him and all the camels. And you will find that in the Gospel of St. Matthew. St. Matthew is so insistent on it. Jesus sees um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who are fishing, and he calls them and immediately. They drop their net, the nets of this father, of, and they, they followed him. He saw Levi, the tax collector, and called him and immediately got up and followed him. Immediately. Where do we see it also? Who did that? Immediately. Yes, the, the prodigal son, but closer to Christmas. Exactly. Immediately. That's a true mark of a Christian soul who is on fire for the Lord. This immediately. You're sitting in front of the TV and uh, it's, uh, it's the Chargers versus Dallas. And it's really tight. And your wife calls from the kitchen and asks you to go get uh, salt. Because there is no more salt. You immediately lean back and focus on the game. You're um, sitting in front of the computer and you're reading news about uh, the health bill system and the phone rings. And it's this pesky neighbor of yours who probably wants to talk to you. And you immediately proceed to ignore the phone. They may seem like very small things, innocuous things, things of no concern. In fact, they're so small that more often than not, you will probably not bring them into confession. But they're not so to the Lord. They're not so to the Lord. What they're basically saying, what, what we're saying with our action, is a couple of things. The fact that we're not aware of what we're doing. The fact that we are not aware of the significance of our act. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you more, another example. came up in a conversation I had with, uh, with someone who's uh, talking to me about uh, married life. Younger couple. And um, he was pointing out to me that uh, his wife might ask him to, say, bring, bring dough or a, or a crust from the store in the morning. And when he gets home at night, he'd forgotten about it. And he's saying to me, she gets upset. So I pointed out to him that probably in his mind, when he's at work and he's focusing on work, and if his boss is upset or if his manager is upset, that's serious because it might have serious consequences 
for his career and therefore for his family life? He said, yes. But if your wife asks you for a pizza crust, you know, what's the consequence? He says, exactly. Okay, now, try and see it from her side. She's preparing dinner. Why do you think she's preparing dinner? Because we need to eat. Wrong. You're missing the point. She doesn't need to prepare dinner if all she wants is to feed you. She can order pizza. She's preparing dinner because she's trying to say something. Our relationship is important and I am taking care of it. I am preparing dinner for you to show you how I care about you. Not you, us. So when you ignore that crust, when you don't bring it back from the store, what are you telling your wife? Our relationship isn't that important. I just want to show a hand from the women. Do you agree what I just said? Yeah? Men? Okay. Now, what do you think that is so? What do you think is the sort of dissonance even between people who are married? It is due, obviously, to original sin that keeps on pulling us apart. It's due to the temptation of the world. It's due to the devil. It's due to our own selfishness. What keeps us together? What brings us together? Truly together. Not living side by side. As in, you know, I'm, wanting, I'm waiting for the, you know, the clock is ticking. And I just have, you know, maybe about 16 other years and then I'll die or she dies. What brings us together? The Holy Spirit. The Holy, without the Holy Spirit, we're, it's hell. It's hell on earth without the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that spurs us to immediacy, spurs us to attentiveness to these small things, without which there is no love. It is the Holy Spirit that gets us out of our selfishness. Yes, honey, I'll turn that TV and I'll go get you this thing. Even if in my book, getting salt is way, 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 way not so important compared to the game with the Chargers and Dallas. But if I do so, I am showing you you're more important than the game. Now, again, this might seem like a, a small thing, but uh, try and put yourself in the shoes of Jesus Christ. He was, he's God. He, I mean, he was perfectly, completely, entirely, divinely happy when he was in heaven. He needed nothing from us. Nothing. And when he came down and lived the life here for 30 years in a small dusty town without any attention brought to him, obeying his mother, and then when he went and died this death on the cross and went back to heaven, he gained nothing. Nothing. We add nothing to him. He is God. We are a creature. Do you think the difference between him and us is smaller than the difference between the Chargers and Dallas and that salt? So think again about what you're saying when you are not immediately responding to someone who's asking you for help. Think again about what is Christmas to you if you're not responding the way Mary responds. Jesus warned us 
The spirit is able, but the flesh is weak. He knows us. He knows us realistically that we can't do this immediate thing on our own. We can't. We need the Holy Spirit to act this way immediately. If there's nothing else you can focus on, if you want to make a resolution for next year, is this immediately. If you are able to take every call for help, everything your wife asks you, your mom asks you, could you please do this? If you can take those as the call, as the express request of God himself. If you could understand that when your wife asks you for something, it is Jesus who's asking you for something. And you can live by it. And truly live by it. You will change your life and the lives of people around you. This immediate business is so important. It is so central to our faith that you can really very easily tell where somebody is in his spiritual journey just by observing how quickly he responds to a call for help. As simple as that. Now, Laban ran and met him, greeted him, embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And then Jacob told Laban all these things. Well, we don't really know what all these things is, but we don't really think that he told him exactly what happened. But presumably he had to say, something happened, I had to leave, and here I am. So he's now a refugee. He has no authority other than the remembrance of Laban, Laban thinking about his folks, but they're far away. And so Laban said to Jacob, Beer, you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what, your, what, what shall your wages be? It sounds like it's a good thing, doesn't it? On the surface of it, it sounds like he's being generous. I mean, you can't just be living here doing nothing. Tell me what you want to be paid for. I mean, you know, give you money. But as usual in these Eastern cultures, um, you know, as a side effect, I've always believed that uh, the only diplomatic language, the only language used for diplomacy should be French. Because it is such an exact language, it does not allow for ambiguity. You cannot be ambiguous. It's very hard in French to try to insult somebody while pretending to, um, to uh, praise him. It's very, very easy in Arabic. And in every Semitic language. In fact, it is an art. And you see it here. On the surface, it seems that he's saying to him, look, um, you're my kinsman. I need to take care of you. What, what shall your wages be? But um, think about it for a second. If your daughter is working with you in your business and you tell her you're going to give her a wage, what are you telling her? What is it that you're not saying? Okay, why? What would you say, actually? What would you say to her? Or, what, what, what is she entitled to? A share in what? The, the profit. Right? You're going to share with her the profit of the business. She's family. 
Wages are for employees. Get it? So he's looking at him and saying, so, you're my kinsman. What shall your wages be? Now, and interestingly enough, surely you are my my bone and my flesh. My bone and my flesh. What is that reminiscent of? My bone and my flesh. Who used these same words, a word similar to that? Right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? And you know how that ended. Here we go again. Which, which generally speaking, suggests that you should always, this is what Jesus also warned us, say what you mean, mean what you say. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Right? Uh, and I've always found the, the way the Easterners, I mean, I found fault in both cultures. In the American culture, when you meet somebody, hi. It's a meaningless word. I don't know what hi means. It carries no meaning. Right? It's so impersonal and so devoid of any meaning that surely we can't be meaning that. I meet you, and I have nothing to say to you. I don't know who you are, and I don't know if I should be talking to you, so I'm going to say something that means nothing. Hi. Contrast that with Semitic cultures, where when they see you, they heap up so many compliments on you, that it becomes almost a competition to see who knows more compliments than the other. And it goes on for like five minutes. Of this ping pong exchange to see who's going to lose first. And in my mind, it's always been just as suspicious. They can't surely mean all these things about me. I mean, they don't really know me. And that is why I've always liked the Christian greeting. Right? You meet someone, good morning. Or, God bless you. What? You mean those words. They have meaning. They carry something. They're saying something, and they say exactly what you mean. You're not saying, good morning, oh, hi, an incredible cousin of mine uh, made out of gold, right? And nor are you saying, hi. It means we have to be careful with our words. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Your word is important. You can't throw it away. So that also implies that you need to know words. You need to be able to speak in such a way that you form complete sentences, that you're using the right vocabulary, and that you're training yourself and expressing your thoughts clearly. It is a, an act of charity, especially to the younger ones. If you're the kind of guy today or kind of gal who speaks like so, dude, like you know what I mean, like I saw him, like he was like incredible, like, just cut that out. This has a negative effect on your spiritual life. You may not be aware of it immediately, but it does. Because implicitly, you're saying, I'm so confused. I don't know what I'm saying. And I don't know what I should be saying. And I never really say what I mean. And I don't mean what I'm saying. Don't listen to me. That's the message that comes across. So you have to work on it. You have to purify your tongue in more than one way. I don't simply mean don't curse. 
that should be obvious, don't swear, but also mean what you say, say what you mean. And if it's difficult, read good books. Train your tongue. It's an act of charity. To speak as clearly as possible. And now we see the little, uh, the deal that is, that is uh, progressing here. Because Jacob asks for Rachel's hand. And he says, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. Which is, by the way, nothing exceptional. This is customary. Right? It was customary back then to serve uh, seven years for the hand of a daughter when you had no dowry to offer. Right? And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I, than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. <clears throat> Meaning, it was always preferred to give daughters of marriage to kinsmen because back then they thought it, it, it preserved the purity of the blood and they were dearly mistaken. And... Uh, Oh, more importantly than the blood, it kept the possession within the family. Right? So stay with me. But he hadn't told him about his little stratagem. So when time came for the mar- marriage, what does he do? You know, he pulls a switcheroo on him, right? Instead of um, Rachel, he gives him Leah. Now, by the way, Leah's eyes were weak. doesn't mean that she could not see clearly. It simply means they were not as pretty. That's all. Though not as pretty as Rachel's. In the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Why in the evening? Because this was when the marriage was about to be consumed. And when he brought her to him, it does not mean that he brought her to him in secret. Remember, back then, women were completely veiled for the wedding. So he brought her to him in the in the, in. The, public view of everyone because he wanted the witnesses that actually Jacob was marrying Leah. And so when the marriage was consumed, that was it. There was nothing Jacob could do. Now, there is a difference between... Uh, on, you, could, you might say this is just retribution because Jacob pretended to be Ishmael, right? And here's Leah. Sorry. Confusion in the family. Esau, right? And here's Leah pretending to be Rachel. But there are differences. Number one, it is not clear that Leah knew what was going on. Nowhere are we told that Laban went to Leah and told her, Jacob wants to marry Rachel, but I'm going to let you marry him. And she went, wow, that's wonderful. We shouldn't impute to her any intention. She's mostly a victim of this whole thing. Alright? She's mostly a victim of this whole thing. There is nothing in the text that suggests that Leah was a bad person. In fact, as you will see a little later, uh, God didn't see it this way at all. And um, the the wedding celebration lasted a week. That's why they speak of a week as you can see here, um, complete the week of this one, and I will give you the other. Meaning, we will have one week of celebration. Even today, among the Jews, they keep on doing this. This is a 
a custom they've kept where there are seven blessings pronounced every day over a cup of wine as new guests come for the wedding. Right? Now, obviously, these days nobody will, will put up a week, a party that will last one week. But uh, that was the uh, intention. And why do you think it, it had to last one week? What was the meaning of this? What, how did the ancient view marriage? What is marriage in the eyes of the ancients? It's a new creation. Every marriage is a new creation. It's the recreation. Hmm? And that's why this notion of covenant between the act of God as he creates the world and marriage is so, is so uh, tightly woven. And that's why the book of Revelation, Revelation, Apocalypsis, the unveiling. Right? The Apocalypsis was also when at the end of the marriage the bride would unveil herself. Right? This language is shown, is, is present in Scripture all around, especially in the book of the Apocalypse, when, in the book of Revelation, when St. John says that you know, the sky was unrolled and the sun were not present. and All this notion of the, scun, the, the, the sky being rolled back like a scroll means an act of decreation. The old world is being rolled away so it, the new one could be rolled. And that's, that notion is always intimately related to marriage, um, to the covenant. And so here we see the seven days being so uh, uh, very much present here. You also notice something about the antiquity of this text. This, is, this text has definitely been written before Exodus because in Deuteronomy there is a specific law that forbids a man from laying with the sister of his wife. So... That's one of the, in other words, while he's married, he cannot take the sister of his wife as a wife or lay with her. He's forbidden from doing so. And yet here, not a word is said about this marriage where Jacob ends with the two sisters. So definitely an ancient text. It precedes Deuteronomy by uh, quite a bit. It's important to, um, uh, to point out. And Laban essentially knew that um, he, um, well, there was a couple of things he wanted. He knew that uh, his daughter would be, it would be difficult to, mar- to, to find a man for, her, for, uh, for his older daughter because she wasn't the prettiest one. And also he knew how, uh, how hard Jacob worked. So, you know, might as well milk the cow while the cow was there. So you, he, Jacob served him for seven years. Let him serve him for another seven years. You get four, you know, 14 years out of him. Right? And presumably he may have other thoughts. That after 14 years he just settled where he is. And therefore he gets to keep everything. So Jacob completed her week. And Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to wife right after. And after that Jacob served him another seven years. So it isn't that Jacob had Leah after seven years, then worked for another seven years and had Rachel. He had Leah, a week later he had Rachel, and then he served for seven years. So notice how he keep his word. He kept his word for seven years, even though Rachel was already his wife. Now here's something very interesting. So Jacob went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for... Now, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Verse 31. 
when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Verse 30. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Scripture is very subtle. You have to pay attention. There is a dissonance between those two verses. It's obvious, but why? What does he do? He opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Now, let me ask you a question. Is it the fault of Leah? Is it the fault of Rachel? Are they guilty in any way? No, they're not. Yet, who gets to be punished in this business? Rachel. Now, the other important element here, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, what is implied here? Think about it for a second. What's implied with this, she was hated? In a very practical sense, what's going on? Here's Leah's tent, and here's Rachel's tent. On any given rainy day, where would you find Jacob? She was hated. One implication is that she had no children, and she would probably not have any. And the other one is that presumably she was, so either that or she was barren. Now, God opened her womb. Why did he open her womb? What's the sign of what? When he opens her womb. Blessing. Again, blessing. Children are always a blessing. That's another reason why we read Genesis. To remind ourselves in this day and age in which we live, where children in the womb has become, have become the enemy, that in the eyes of God, children are always a blessing. But it's interesting that, I mean, why didn't he, I don't know, smite Jacob? Break his leg or something. Right? Or, or send consumption to Laban. Or do something. Why is it that Laban gets nothing? Nothing. And Jacob gets nothing. It's the woman who gets it. What's going on here? Does this sound like the actions of a just God to you? If we wanted to couch everything in terms of justice... If we wanted God to play, play it by justice, in fact, in fact, most of us tend to be very hypocritical about it. Because this is what we want. When it comes to us, we want mercy. And when it comes to others, we want justice. Right? We sit here, and when we think about the legislation being enacted and the position of President Obama on abortion and other such issues, we want justice. And we want it right now. As if impatience is part of justice. But when it comes to us, we're different. We're good. We want mercy. If God were to play it by the book, by justice, what do you think would have happened? If God was just, I mean, He is just, if He didn't extend mercy to us, what would happen? 
we would not be having this Bible study here. There would not be a church here. And we, all of us, the best of us, the best of us shown in the book of Genesis, by the way, this is the best of us, what you see in the book of Genesis, would end up where? Huh? In hell. That's justice. We have an issue with that justice because we're on the receiving end. We don't like it. But that is God's justice. We are all, by birth, destined to hell. According to His justice. See, our biggest problem, you know what our biggest problem is? Entitlement. Entitlement is our biggest problem. We are convinced that we are entitled to heaven. Somehow, I don't know how, we're convinced that all of us have gone to this heavenly real estate agency and we're paying a mortgage for a house in heaven. And it's ours. We have this conviction that, of course, we're going to heaven. On our own. But the truth of the matter is, the only good that comes out of us as a human race is through Jesus Christ. He is the only good. Why do you call me good, he told the rich man. Only God is good. He said it because he knew this, this rich man was not looking at him as God. Only God is good. He is the vine. And that vine is producing fruits through his death on the cross. That's the only thing that produces fruits. Nothing else does. We're the branches. If we're linked to this vine, through his mercy, his mercy, he allows us to bear fruit. We are not entitled to heaven. We have no title save that of Jesus Christ. For none of us shall be saved other by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, unless we act like Jacob did when he saw Rachel, by this I mean, unless we act with supernatural force to show how we love his church, his bride, there's no heaven. St. Augustine, he who does not have the Catholic church for his mother, does not have God for his father. You want to know how you love Jesus Christ? Show your love to the church. Don't think you love Jesus Christ if you don't love the church. It doesn't work this way. It's your love for the church. And how do you show your love for the church? Sunday. Perfect example. Sunday. How do you come to the church on Sunday? You come late, dragging your feet, dressed in casual clothing, running shoes, t-shirts. You're just coming here like it's, um, I don't know, courtyard, some regular place. I'll show up late. I'll stand. I won't participate in the liturgy. I won't open my mouth. I'll just stand like a stone. Stand. Sit, kneel, stand, and I won't say nothing. I won't lift up my heart to God. I'm not here to 
praise him because praise is due, because he actually is extending salvation to me. I'm, not gonna, I'm, I'm here because I have to be here. But don't ask me really why. Why? Because I cut that deal with the heavenly real estate. I already have a mansion, a condo in heaven waiting for me. What do I have to come here for? And the, and, the, and the Holy Trinity is watching. And the angels are watching. And the saints are watching. And here we are. Is that Christmas? We, as people of God, should show the same kind of love that Jacob showed Rachel at the well. By doing our utmost in lifting the stone that prevents others from drinking. Meaning, in lifting the stone that prevents others from coming to Christ. And how do we do that? By our behavior. How we live our lives. Simple as that. We don't have to be preachers. We don't have to dress in strange clothing. We just have to live a holy life. And it shows. And it's communicated. And people come to the well. And there is water. That's what we're called to do. This is what Christmas means. The light has shone in the darkness. And we are supposed to be the light of the world. The other thing I, would, I want to point out to you before I, I close. Notice the attitude of Jacob. He was dealt the hand he didn't want. And then he needed to serve another seven years. Not a word of complaint came out of his mouth. Nothing. He just did it. We live in difficult times. Some of us are facing economic hardship. Others are concerned about what is going to happen. There is a sense of anxiety that looms over our heads and threatens to smother Christmas, the joy of Christmas. Let not your heart be troubled, says the Lord. I have conquered the world. If you truly live in the friendship of Jesus Christ, you let go of the concerns of your life, of your anxieties, of the exams that you may have, of thinking about finding a job, of all those difficulties. You surrender your life to Him, and He will take care of everything else. Jacob was all alone. He had nothing. No one to defend him. He lived at the mercy of a kin of his who was borderline. He could have killed him. He had nobody. He had nobody. He was an illegal immigrant. I mean, understand the precarity of a situation. It was not easy. He left everything. He had a really comfortable life. He was the, the one that his, his, his mother loved him. His father loved him. He had everything. And now he is working, toiling for 14 years on his own with nothing. But God was with him. And God saw to it that he would prosper. And remember the words of Jesus Christ. If God did this to those who are 
lesser than John the Baptist. And if, because J John the Baptist was the greatest of all the prophets. And if the Lord said that even John the Baptist, when he was living on earth, was the least, he's, he, was, he was less than the least of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. How do you think he sees you? Right now, how do you think he sees you, each and every one of you? You are precious to him. You are so precious to him. He redeemed you with his blood. This is how he sees you. Problem is, you don't see yourself the way he sees you. Because we are encumbered with all the problems of life, we have a hard time seeing ourselves the way the Lord sees us. But that's what we're called to do. Stand before him, surrender everything to him, believe in the joy of Christmas. Even if it sounds that there is nothing out there that would encourage you to believe. After all, Joseph and Mary were in a cave out there all by themselves. In the middle of the world, which was seeped in paganism, in a religion absolutely opposed to the birth of Christ, by people who refused them shelter everywhere. And yet, angels, angels proclaim the joy of Christmas. This is the meaning of this feast that we're moving towards. Joy. Let nothing trouble you. Surrender your life to Christ. Pray. Live like Jacob lived. Minus the four wives. And trust in God. And in His will will be done in your life. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.